Hello, and welcome to Homegrown KC, a podcast dedicated to exploring Kansas City's fascinating history and sharing stories from a church past. I'm your host, Laura. Join me today as we explore a piece of Kansas City's history. Welcome back, listeners. Laissez le bon tom roule. I have never taken French, so I probably just butchered that pronunciation, in which case I apologize. But it means let the good times roll because today is March 1st, 2022. It is Shriv Tuesday, also known as Pancake Tuesday or National Free IHOP Day. Um, I'm trying to get National Free Pancake Day at IHOP. There you go. Um, so this is um, one more thing, also known as Carnival. One day, I really want to go to Venice and see Carnival. That'd be amazing. Um, this is the last like big feast day before Lent, as I understand it. I'm not 100% on that because I'm not Catholic, and I only celebrate it because I love pancakes. Sorry. I also wanted to say happy late Chinese New Year. Um, I realized I forgot to say that in the last episode, which came out like the day of, for the day after Chinese New Year started. Uh, quick announcement. If you missed the last episode, Homegrown KC is going to have its first live appearance. Yay! I'm super excited about this. Uh, it's going to be Saturday, April 30th. Um, from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. I think last time I said 4 p.m. It ends at 5 p.m. Um, it's the last Saturday of April. There's a history festival going on in my hometown of Leavenworth, so I'm going to have a booth, and this is really exciting. I hope that you will come on down, stop on by, and say hi. Um, there's going to be a ton of stuff there, some contests. There's going to be a sock hop Friday night with live music. Um, all the local museums will be there. It really sounds like a lot of fun. If you want more information, check out the link to the event on my Facebook page. Or you can go to the Facebook page for the festival itself. It's First City History Festival. Alright, so this is Topic 3, the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art. And this is Part 8 of Series Treasures of Kansas City. This is the final episode of this topic and the final episode of this series. We're finally here. It's been like a year. If this is your first time listening, welcome. So glad you decided to check it out. But please stop. Go back and listen to parts one and six. I know it sounds like a lot, but go back and listen to another episode first. You know, it's cool. Um, but you really should listen to parts one through six. Uh, one through seven, actually, first, because this is part eight. Um, and then it'll make a lot more sense. So, recap. Mary Atkins and the entire Nelson family left money in their estates, uh, in their wills, for the creation of an art museum in Kansas City, and that's in the early 1900s. Um, the multiple estates, honestly, finally get together in, what was that, late 1920s, and they're like, you know what, we're all working towards the same goal, we really need to combine resources. So they do, and the museum opens to the public in December 1933. Several of the museum's first employees were members of the monuments women, men and women during World War II. 
So there's a whole episode about that. It's really cool. Um, and that means that in the 40s, while all the men are off fighting in the war, there's some badass ladies who are running the museum. There's an episode all about that. The 1950s saw the museum's 25th anniversary and expansion of several of its programs. They kind of cruised along through the 60s and 70s. And then there was massive employee overturn in the 1980s. Uh, plus, the museum's 50th was celebrated in the 1980s. And so here we are now. We're starting up mid-90s because I couldn't finish them in the last episode. And we're going to go all the way through the current day. So, um, picking up right where we left off, as I said, in the mid-90s, uh, in 94, the board of trustees realized that the museum had grown so much that they're basically at capacity, and so they decided to add an extension to the building, uh, but they soon realized that even that, what they had planned was not enough, so then the next year, they're like, okay, you know, we're gonna make this expansion bigger than we thought, we're gonna do this $125 million campaign plan. Um, it's called Vision 2010, and the three university trustees, Don Hall, Henry Block, and Estelle Soslin, they actually put up half of that $125 million themselves. Um, between the three of them, they donated $60 million. In 96, George McKenna, the curator of prints, photographs, and drawings, retired after 44 years at the museum. The chief conservator, Force Bailey, who had begun working at the museum in 1972. He left in 98, and he was replaced by Elizabeth Batchelor. The Department of 20th Century Art was renamed the Department of Modern and Contemporary Art, and Deborah Scott, the modern art curator, also became the first chief curator in 1998. So, to be honest, I had to look this up, and according to the associate, because I had no idea what a chief curator is, according to the Association of Art Museum Directors, a chief curator, quote, is a member of the museum's senior management team, actively participating in shaping the organization's vision and mission while directing its artistic program. This position leads the efforts to build, present, care for, and conserve the museum's collections and is responsible for the support and content of the ex exhibitions and related efforts. The chief curator manages the curatorial department and all aspects of its operations, working in a collegial manner to build trust and respect in a team-centric department and throughout the museum. End quote. So, sounds extremely important. It kind of sounds like you have the director of the museum and then the chief curator and then all the other curators. In 1998, the city, Kansas City, the city, gave ownership of the Nelson Gallery half of the museum and the land which it sat on, which apparently they've owned all this time because that was a part of Erwin Cookwood's will. Um, they gave it to the trustees. And why they didn't do it decades ago, I have no idea. Uh, the Atkins estate trustees were like, you do you, boo. We're going to keep ours. I would be really curious to learn if the estate um, is still in the hands of the Atkins estate trustees or not. I looked, but I couldn't find any information that said one way or the other. Ellen Goheen, who had been there for forever and then retired, not really, because she came back and worked in the education department part-time, she retired again, permanently at this time, in 1999. Mr. Binkley, sorry, Dr. Binkley, retired in 99 to go work at the Smithsonian, which, okay, of course, right on. I 
think I might have managed that mentioned that in the last episode. Yes, no. Um, his department, because remember he did like African art and oceanic art and something that we were calling New World Cultures, I think, was that it? And I was like, no, that's a really awkward name. We don't like that. Um, so after he left, they broke his department in two. And don't worry, this is a good thing because this means that the next person or actuality people uh, can put more of their focus on more specific projects and they don't have so much, you know, that they have to worry about. So it's divided into African art and Native American art. And they hired a curator for each. Dr. Elizabeth Cameron became the curator of African art. Took him a couple of years to fill the Native American slot. In 2000, they created the Department of Exhibitions Management and hired Cindy Cart as the first curator of this department. Also in 2000, the directorship was endowed by the Blackwell family, making Wilson the first Menefe D. and Mary Louise Blackwell director, and he was named CEO of the museum. I also want to note that this is not the first endowed position at the museum. There have been several endowed curatorships in the late 70s and 80s. I just skipped them. In 2002, Scott decided to give up being the modern curator and passed it on to Dr. Jane Schall, who was the associate curator. Also in 02, so I just said that it took him a couple years to fill the Native American slot. They've been talking to this one guy since the position opened, and he's like, no, I'm really not interested. Okay, so in 2002, Director Wilson finally convinced Dr. Gaylord Torrance a renowned authority on Native American art at the time. Um, and he'd actually, he'd previously been a consultant on the Native American art collection here at the Nelson. Finally convinced him to move the KC and to be the curator. Catherine Futter, Futter, um, F-U-T-T-E-R, joined the team a few months later as the curator of decorative arts. And you know what? The board's willingness to hire all these new people is really refreshing, especially after they're like, we really want to downsize and get rid of everybody back in the early 80s. Uh, there was yet another new hire in late 2002. Ian Kennedy replaced Roger Ward, who had left the year before, um, and Kennedy became the new curator of European art. In 2006, the KC Sculpture Park was expanded and merged with the E.F. Pearson Sculpture Garden, which had opened in 1972. Then in 2013, the whole thing was renamed the John, uh, Donald J. Hall Sculpture Park in honor of Donald Hall, who was a university trustee and whose family and foundation has been extremely generous to the museum. Part of the expansion project from the mid-90s was the creation of the block building. So they broke ground in 2001, and they finally finished in 2007. The museum actually selected the design for this building in 99, so this was a very long process. The building was designed by an architect from Stephen Hall Architects, which was a New York-based firm. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the block building, it looks absolutely nothing like the original building. Um, it's actually going to be the cover photo on my social media pages for this episode, so make sure you take a peek at that. And as you can well imagine, um, since it is so different, there were a lot of folks who were not happy with it. 
But honestly, it's a beautiful addition. It is 840 feet long, 1,600, I did not say that right, 165,000 square feet. There you go. And uh, the walls are like all glass, or at least one, one wall is all glass. And it gets a lot of natural light. It's just, it's very classy looking modern building. Quote, the new addition contains galleries and public facilities, including an entry lobby, an art gallery, a cafe, and a sculpture court devoted to the works of Isamu Noguchi, end quote. And I don't know if I said that artist's name right. I apologize if I said it wrong. I feel like I might have. It won the Capstone Architectural Design Award in 2008, and it's won several other architectural awards since then. Quote, it features more than 4,000 square feet for special exhibitions and a major art research library. The project included an underground parking garage beneath a 134 by 161 foot, uh, 120,000 gallon reflecting pool outside the West entrance, end quote. All right, so this is part of why it took so long to build all of this. It's more than just this extra building, which is really quite large. Um, it also includes the parking garage and this reflecting pool. So if you remember way back in like episode two, when I talked about the original design for this building, one of the suggestions was a reflecting pool, which was actually going to be on the east side of the building between it and uh, the road down there, which I think is Emanuel Cleaver Boulevard. And it looked really pretty, right? It was huge. And they're like, no, it's too big. And um, there's all these extra permits. It, it ended up being too complicated to build. We finally have a reflecting pool and it's really pretty. We love it. Moving on. In 06, Andrew Barker retired after 28 years. In December 2005, the Hall Family Foundation donated the Hallmark Photographic Collection to the museum. Okay, we're going to get really deep into the photographs for a minute. This is very cool. So the museum began collecting photographs in 1957. They were given 60 prints by Edward Weston. Weston, who was born in 1886 and died in 1956, was an American photographer. Quote, the works for which he is famous, sharp, stark, brilliantly printed images of sand dunes, nudes, vegetables, rock formations, trees, cacti, shells, water, and human faces are among the finest of 20th century photographs. Their influence on modern art remains inestimable. End quote. The Hallmark Collection, which was, uh, as I said a minute ago, added in 2005, this put them on the world stage as far as photography as art is concerned. It does for the museum photography department that Langdon did for the Chinese department. Like, they are world-renowned now for their photography collection. The collection is, quote, comprised of more than 6,500 works by 900 artists. Founded in 1964, the Hallmark Photographic Collection contains superb examples of virtually all major practitioners in the medium's early and modern history. 
in addition to singular works of superior quality by a wide array of notable figures, the collection boasts substantial holdings by Timothy O'Sullivan, Harry Callahan, Andre Cretes, Todd Webb, Clarence John Laughlin, Dorothea Lange, Carl Van Vechten, Ralph Eugene Meyerd, and Dave Heath. End quote. So today, this collection is housed in the Block Building. And here is my favorite part of this history. I don't know how much y'all are into the history of photography. I think it's super fascinating. So we're about to do a little deep dive here. And I'm going to give you a quick history of daguerreotypes. So if you want more detailed information that I'm going to give you, Stuff You Missed in History podcast just did an episode on this a couple of weeks ago. It's really good. I'll have a link for it on the website. Backing up just a short bit, so the world's first photograph was created in 1826 by Joseph Nisfore Nipsey. Sorry, again, I never took French. I don't know how to pronounce French words. What he created is a heliograph. It took eight hours to develop, and for those of you who are born after 2000 and you only know of digital photographs... Again, the history of photography is utterly fascinating, the way that the technology developed. Basically, an image captured, quote, lands on a piece of paper in most, but not all instances, because some photographs are not made with paper. And it, you know, quote, appears over the course of a few minutes or again, several hours, depending on the type of photograph and the technology. And this is done through a chemical process caused by um, the paper's exposure to different types of light. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes? No? Um, and uh, Okay, so here's another way to explain it. Okay, so with your phone, you just took the photo, and then you're going to edit it, and you can edit the um, exposure or the contrast... That's the amount of light that is, you know, in the photo. So that's the digital version of how this is done, sort of, kind of. Anyway, so because of the chemicals used in the heliograph, the photo would continue to, quote, develop, and eventually the image would disappear because it had absorbed too much light. Louis Daguerre who lived a very fascinating life before he developed his photograph technology, and that's all in the Stuff You Missed in History episode. He was experimenting with something called a camera obscura. Quote, A darkened box with a convex lens or aperture for projecting the image of an external object onto a screen inside. End quote. And in 1839, he ended up settling on, quote, treating silver-plated copper sheets with iodine to make them sensitive to light, then exposing them in a camera and, quote, developing, end quote, the images with warm mercury vapor. The fumes from the mercury vapor combined with the silver to produce an image. The play was washed in a saline solution to prevent further exposure, end quote. And this process only took 20 minutes to develop. His technology absolutely paved the way for photography to grow into the art form that it is today. And the Nelson Atkins Museum owns several very significant daguerreotypes. 
In fact, they now have over 1,000 daguerreotypes and are, quote, recognized as one of the top five American daguerreotype collections in the U.S., end quote. They began seriously collecting daguerreotypes by American photographers in 1995, and they lay claim to, quote, possibly the earliest of only six known daguerreotypes of noted abolitionist John Brown, end quote. In 2019, the Hall Family Foundation paid for a photo from the, quote, 1850s and is believed to depict the rural Greene County, Georgia plantation of Samuel T. Gentry, end quote. The t- photographer is unknown, but this is a rare photo of uh, enslaved individuals, and it's believed that Gentry commissioned the photograph to be taken so that he would have evidence of his, quote, property. So first, you gross. Humans are not property. But on the other hand, it's like, yay, because this piece of history still exists, and now we have record of these individuals where, you know, like, so often they were not recognized, not recorded. It's like they didn't exist, but they did. We need to, you know, acknowledge that. And then just a couple months ago, in December 2021, they purchased the Henry Fitz Jr. Archive of Photographic History at an auction in Cincinnati, Ohio. Fitz was an American photographer, optician, and inventor, and he made telescopes. That's pretty cool. Quote, The archive includes 23 daguerreotypes and two oil paintings of Henry Fitz Jr. and his wife, Julia Wells Fritz. Sorry, Fitz. The most significant piece is a profile portrait of Henry Fitz Jr., which is believed to have been taken in January or February 1840, and is among the earliest daguerreotype portraits made in the United States. Other significant pieces include four slightly later portraits of believed to be Fitz, a beautiful early hand-colored portrait of his wife, Julia, and two to four portraits of Fitz's sister, Susan. End quote. So... Yeah, our, our photography collection is amazing. I'm really excited about the daguerreotypes. I really want to see if I can go to the museum and, you know, view them in person. Um, backing up again, back in the museum's history, because I really wanted to put everything about the photographs together. The museum celebrated its 75th anniversary in 2008. So that's super cool. And some sad news. Director Wilson retired in 2010. Dr. Julian Zugazayotia, and um, I did take Spanish in high school. That was 10 plus years ago, so my pronunciation is crap, and I'm pretty sure I just butchered his name. My apologies. He was selected. We're going to call him Dr. Z going forward. Dr. Z was selected as the museum's fourth director, and he is still director today. He was born in Mexico City and studied in France. He earned his PhD in philosophy from Sorbonne. Before coming to KC, he worked for UNESCO for a number of years. UNESCO is the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization and is a very BFD. In undergrad, I used to daydream about working for them, but that's never going to happen. He was also a consultant for the Getty Museum in LA and executive assistant director for the Guggenheim in New York. He's like a rock star of the museum world. Also, if you can hear the puppies barking up a storm in the background, I apologize. Hopefully that'll come out in recording. So where were we? Um, The museum renewed their accreditation in 2011, 
That means the American Alliance of Museums, an organization begun in 1906 that supports and navigates for museums, it's a BFD, um, they, uh, accreditation is something they do. It's basically like a platinum star of excellence for museums. So accreditation, again, also a BFD. Um, so accreditations started in 1971, and I couldn't find anything that said when the museum was first accredited, but I'm guessing it was the early 80s, if not the late 70s. Turns out it's a long-ass process. They started the paperwork for the renewal in 2007, and it took them four years to finish it all. Two key items occurred in 2015. The HFF, which, um, okay, so sorry, in my notes I just have HFF. That's the Hall Family Foundation. Gave the museum $10 million to buy yet more photographs for the collection. And Henry Block, the guy, not the Block Foundation, but the person, he gave his entire collection of Impressionist paintings to the Nelson Atkins. That was 29 masterpieces by Bernard, Baudin, Cezanne, Degas, Monet, Van Gogh, and others. Originally, he and his wife had promised these works of art to the museum after their deaths, but then Marion died in 2013, and everything I read about Henry is like he super loved his wife. So I think he was just heartbroken, and he's like, you know what, I'm going to give them to the museum early. Lastly, we come to modern day 2020 and 21, the pandemic. So the first case of COVID appeared in December 2019. The first reported American case was mid-January 2020, and the HWO formally declared coronavirus a pandemic on March 11th, 2020. This prompted a nationwide lockdown. I remember this day very clearly. I'm sure y'all do too. The museum locked its doors, and they stayed closed for six months straight. They did not reopen until September 2020 at which time Kansas Cityans were required to register for their visit ahead of time online. There were a limited number of visitors allowed per hour, and you had to wear a mask in the building at all times. Sadly, there were also layoffs and budget cuts. Quote, prior to the pandemic, the Nelson Atkins annual budget was about $34 million. Its budget is now, and this is from an article written in 2020, is now... 26 million, which Stone said is still sustainable. The Nelson Atkins laid off 36 members, which is about 15% of its workforce, amid a 25% budget cut in October 2020. End quote. I really hope those people were rehired later on, or at least found a good job in the meantime since they were laid off. The timed entry stayed in place for quite a while. It is no longer necessary, but masks are still required when you're in the building. But despite these challenges, the museum has not stopped. In September 2021, they announced a new strategic plan. It has multiple pieces to it, including raised wages, five new board members, a new board leadership, and more inclusion, access, and diversity throughout the museum. Oh, this was also interesting. So in 2020, we had the Black Lives Matter movement explode across America in the summer, right? 
And if you've been listening from the beginning, you'll remember that Mr. Nelson, for whom the museum is named, who owned the Kansas City Star, in 2020, so this is a little bit convoluted, sorry. In 2020, the Star ran a series of articles in which they examined their own history and the role that it played. I have absolutely no idea what they're barking about. They're usually not that bad. Anyways, um, quote, it included an apology from Mike Fannin, president and editor, quote, we are sorry. The Kansas City Star prides itself on holding power to account. Today, we hold up the mirror to ourselves to see the historic role we have played through both action and inaction in shaping and misshaping Kansas City's landscape. It is time that we own our own history, end quote. So basically, especially back when he owned the star and like not long after he died, a lot of the articles that they printed were responsible for reinforcing and um, propagating, propagating, propagating um, racial discrimination and black stereotypes. As a result, the newspaper decided to try to distance themselves from the creator, uh, from Mr. Nelson. So they removed his name and his image from the front page where it's always been. And this caused a lot of Kansas Cityans to question whether the art museum would follow suit. Quote, Museum leadership, along with leadership of our board of trustees and staff, read the Star's recent piece, along with the many pieces published on the Star's own history in late 2020. Quote, Kathleen Lighton, the museum's manager of media relations and video production, said in an email. End quote. So, that was a quote within a quote. Those are always tricky. Um, no, no action has been taken thus far. The museum has not changed its name. It sounds like they're not really planning to, but that was a question that was around for about a, a good few months at least. Um, this is the very last thing that I'm going to discuss today. This has been a long episode. We had a lot to cover. I really wanted to talk about some of the annual events that the Nelson hosts. So there's an annual Mother's Day event, Memorial Day and Labor Day. Those have been around pretty much since the museum opened. They started a Chinese New Year celebration in 96. Sadly, it has been virtual for the past couple of years. I was hoping that this year they would bring it back in person, but that did not happen. They also started a Day of the Dead celebration in 2011, and it's probably because Dr. Z is from Mexico, but this is still cool. Uh, this was in person in 2021. There was a giant altar in the lobby that visitors could, you know, come and see and uh, interact with. They also have an American Indian cultural celebration, which began in 2014. Uh, and there's Third Thursdays, which also began in 2014. Uh, there's live drinks and music and just kind of like a chill networking hangout sort of thing going on in the block building library. I haven't tried out Third Thursdays yet, but uh, I really want to. I think we're going to put that on the... Um, on the bucket list for KC homegrown KC adventures. Um, and I totally forgot to mention this before now. Okay. Um, so the glass labyrinth, it's a part of the sculpture garden and it's an actual labyrinth. It's not a maze. 
Um, it was added to the Nelson Atkins lawn in 2013. Again, haven't tried it yet. On the bucket list. And they started a mini golf course in the summer of 2019. That sounds like fun. In 2017, they began hosting Juneteenth celebrations. Juneteenth is now a U.S. federally recognized holiday that celebrates the day that the last enslaved individuals in Texas heard of the Emancipation Proclamation. It was like three years after it had been signed. In 2019, a KC legend, the Tivoli, the- uh, Tivoli, sorry, the Tivoli Theater, closed its doors for the final time. It was very, very sad. Uh, but the Nelson Atkins kind of took it over somehow, and so now we have uh, Tivoli at the Nelson Atkins in the Atkins Auditorium. And in the summertime, they actually hold it outside. Um, this is definitely on the bucket list. I tried a couple of times to get tickets for movies last summer, but once the movie's announced, it sells out in like 24 hours or less. And lastly, they have a Deaf Cultural Festival in September. Uh couldn't find an exact start date, but I think it began in 2019. I'm sorry if there are any other cultural festivals that I missed. This is all I could find information on. Next year, 2023, will be the museum's 90th anniversary. That's super, super exciting. I hope they plan something really big for it in person. And I hope this pandemic is officially completely over so that we can enjoy it in person. That'll be the end of today's episode. Thank you for joining me as we finished up the history of the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art. Thank you for joining me throughout this entire uh, saga. So sources, my main source has been the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art and History by Christy Wolferman. Other sources for this episode include the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art Archives, Encyclopedia Britannica, and newspaper articles from the Kansas City Star and the Kansas City Beacon. Other sources also include the Weston Gallery website and the Franklin Institute website. Y'all. Y'all. This is uh, not a source, but it's something y'all have to check out. The Art Museum started a podcast in early January. It finished in like mid-February, so it's already over. Short six episodes. So good, though. Hosted by Glenn North a KC award-winning poet, activist, educator, and arts executive. He is currently the executive director at the Bruce and Watkins Cultural Center. He has also worked with the American Jazz Museum and the Black Archives of Mid-America. The museum is absolutely brilliant. Please check it out. They look at issues of race through the lens of the museum's history. I will have a link to it on the website. And again... Don't forget to check out the First City History Festival um, Facebook page, or there's information about it on my Facebook page. It's the last weekend in April. I'm going to have a booth. I'm super excited. Please come see me. Final announcement. I'm really excited for this next series. Um, I'm planning on researching and writing this month and debuting the first episode um, like April 1st, maybe a couple days later. Um... It is going to be on the Wyandotte Nation. And I've already reached out to the Wyandotte Nation and been in contact with a member of the tribe. Um, I don't know. Is is tribe equal and interchangeable with nation? Or is like tribe like a subset? That's going to be one of the questions I ask her. Anyways, already in contact with them. 
I'm uh, very hopeful for a special Patreon episode with a member of the Wind Nation, which will be available to all of my listeners for a short time. So stay tuned for this upcoming series. I hope you will become a financial supporter of the show. There are several ways in which you can do so. You can subscribe to patreon.com slash homegrownkc or redcircle.com slash homegrownkc. You can also give a one-time donation at redcircle.com slash homegrownkc or ko-fi.com slash homegrownkc. That's ko-fi.com slash homegrownkc. You can give as little or as much as you want a month. If you become a monthly subscriber, you'll be charged on the first of every month. And you get some um, cool stuff if you become a supporter. First, you get a item from the merchandise store valued at $5 or less. You get a shout-out on every episode and social media post. So thank you, Bjorn and Joan, for your continued support. Love you. And you get access to exclusive bonus content featuring local historians, archivists, and museum experts. If you simply give a donation, you will not receive access to the bonus content or the item from the merchandise store, but I will give you a shout-out on an episode. Additionally, every donation from... Uh, Kofi, automatically 1% will go to help fight climate change. If you can't support me monetarily, totally cool, I get you. You can still support me by following and subscribing to the show on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Twitter, and Tumblr. Also, I have a YouTube channel. Um, share it with everyone you know, friends, family, coworkers, people you don't like. Make sure you rate and review me on Apple Podcasts. And you can also check me out on Audia. It's a new audio-based platform I'm partnering with, which features multiple kinds of audio-based content, not just podcasts. You can visit my website for additional information, homegrownkc.wordpress.com. It is still slightly out of date. I'm working on building the web pages, but so far it's looking really good. And I'm, I'm getting there, guys. You can also sign up for my newsletter on my website. I will not spam you, promise. You will not get an email from me every day. I have a few people I follow that I do that, and it's actually kind of annoying. Um, I think once a month you'll get a, a newsletter from me that says, here's the new episode, here's what's new in my world. It just gives you an update on what's going on with the podcast. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or episode suggestions, you can email me at homegrownkcpodcast at gmail.com or DM me on any of my social networks. For merchandise, visit Zazzle, that's Z-A-Z-Z-L-E dot com, slash store, slash homegrown, underscore, Casey, underscore store, to see what's available. Tons of stuff. Hats, socks, masks, shirts, gloves, probably not gloves, coffee cups, beer glass, buttons, magnets, probably more coming in the future. Thank you goes out to my very talented sister-in-law, Sarah McCombs, for the creation of my logo. To the Dear Misses for the use of their song Kansas City as the intro and outro music of the show. And to local libraries, which enable me to gather all my research. And thank you for listening. Cheers.
can seem to shake this feeling And I can seem to get you off my mind I've lost my nerve forever And I know that it's now or never To try and see this through Die loose ends up with bow and start anew We could talk through the nights on the phone Yo